inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Waste in space, specifically human waste. What do you do with it, and is it good for anything? Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and today I'll be talking to Daniel Yeh, an engineering professor at the University of South Florida in Tampa, as well as the winner of the 2014 Cade Prize. Welcome to Radio Cade, Daniel. Richard, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me here. So, Daniel, you've had an incredible ride over the last several years. Six years ago, you won the Cade Prize. It was a great moment for you and your team. And we're going to talk all about that, the technology behind it and so on. But first, I'd sort of like to focus on you a little bit. Tell us what's the Daniel A. story. So you're born, you come home from the hospital, then what happens? And then how did you end up in Tampa? So, so I grew up in northern New Jersey, I think just typical suburban environment, nothing really exciting. And I was thinking you might ask me this question. So I was thinking, you know, do I have something, some aha moment as an inventor, right? You people usually point to something when they're little, right. somebody gave them some electronic toolkit and that sparked some creativity. No, I think I listened to a lot of music. And at the time, that was obviously pre-internet. I just listened to a lot of radio. And whenever I can, get on the bus. And later, I was able to drive over to New York City, go watch concerts and clubs and whatnot. And that's mostly what I did, focus a lot on music. Are you a musician yourself? That's on my bucket list. Uh-huh. And to pick up a guitar and play, and probably should, now that you're asking me that. <laughs> So after high school, I went to the University of Michigan. And for me, that was a world of difference from what I was used to coming from the New York, New Jersey area, being the Midwest. And I I think that experience going to the University of Michigan, being the Midwest, really changed my life in many ways. I got to see a different perspective of how people are in the Midwest. And of course, I met my wife there. That helps. (laughs) Yeah, that was life changing for the better. So when you entered the University of Michigan, did you know you wanted to study engineering or what was your undergraduate major? I, I did not. So I, I thought about biology and I was really attracted to nature. That was one thing that might explain where I am today. I was really attracted to nature. I started out in the School of Natural Resources and ended up with degrees in natural resources as well as civil engineering. I even attended forestry camps. I thought I was going to be a forest ranger. But at some point at Michigan, something clicked. I realized that engineers develop solutions. Engineering is how you get things done. And if I really want to, I think, solve problems, I need to become an engineer. So that's where I pivoted and double majored and pursued a degree in civil engineering, the realm of equations. So you finished up at UM, and then what came after that? From there, I went to work, went back to New Jersey to work, worked for a consulting company, did a lot of computer modeling to study the impacts of human development on water bodies. So specifically looking at this case where there's a potential development in a watershed in northern New Jersey, in a pristine watershed, and our job as the consultant was to project the impact from that development, how that might impact the water reservoir. So I think that was a good experience because it really got me to think about what constitutes a good computer model 
when people say garbage in, garbage out, I really understood what that meant. A model is only as good as the assumptions that you put behind it. It's only as good as the data that you have to formulate the model. From there, I decided to go back to Michigan to get my master's degree. And then after I got my master's degree, I worked at Ford Motor Company for a little while. So that was a good experience getting industrial engineering, industrial waste management experience. I was part of a research group that was in charge of troubleshooting issues at Ford, almost kind of like a strike force looking at different issues related to environmental aspects, waste management at Ford. But that's where I think I met my first life-changing mentor. His name is Byung Kim. And Dr. Kim really just loved to talk and give advice. And he said, young man, you need to go south to Georgia Tech because that's where before he came to Ford was teaching. Uh, okay. And I followed his advice and went to Georgia Tech to pursue my PhD in environmental engineering. Wow. Yeah. And then you just kept going. You got a PhD and... Kept going, yeah. I think that didn't have everything mapped out. A lot of that is just, well, in each one of these jobs, I always felt like I didn't know enough. Mm -hmm. I always felt like I could do my work, but I just didn't know enough. Right. There was something that was kind of nagging me. Like, I could apply the solution, but, but what constitutes that solution? Like, how did people come up with that solution? And I felt like, ultimately, I really need to get a PhD so I can essentially construct something from zero. Right. And I'm glad I did, because I think that whole PhD process rewires your brain. Right. Like I it believe does. it. Either it breaks you or it makes you. <laughs> a lot of inventors have unique stories. And when you start out saying that you used to go to New York City, it's funny. I've had two other inventors on the show and they start the exact same way. But the sentence always ends like, I went to go see like planetariums and science museums. You're the first says, I went to music clubs. So this is <laughs> I, I, I did. I went to the village. And, you know, just... <laughs> All sorts of ways that you can map out a career path, but that's not a bad one. So Daniel, let's talk about your inventions. And first of all, the work that you've been doing recently, at least since I've met you in the last six years, it deals with stuff that most people by definition don't ever want to hear about or talk about. It's human waste. And so forgive me, you've probably heard every single poop joke out there. By now, you've probably gotten used to it. I've heard most of them, but there's still some good ones. Yeah. <laughs> so start out by explaining the technology that won the Cade Prize six years ago, the new generator, which if I remember, was solar powered. It converted human waste into nutrients, energy, and water, hence the name. And it was essentially like an all-in-one sanitation slash power slash water system for small villages. And is that essentially what it did? And that's essentially what it is. So the motivation behind this idea is the fact that we have close to 3 billion people on the planet that lack something that we take for granted every day, which is the ability to go to the bathroom and, and flush and forget and go about our daily business. And the reason that we're able to flush and forget is because in our society, this infrastructure, starting with the toilet, is but then you have a whole series of underground pipes, the pipes in your house, the sewers in the city, a massive underground network and leading to a wastewater treatment facility that handles that waste and turns it into clean water, water that's either clean enough to put back into the nature or water that you can recycle for other uses. This system is very expensive to build and probably even more expensive to maintain. So for many parts of the world that are in the emerging economies, they're struggling with various infrastructure issues. Issues. And this type of sanitation infrastructure that we use is really difficult for a lot of cities to build. Not to mention that for many mega cities, they basically build very organically. So now it's very difficult to go back and basically dig up the entire right. underground and put all those pipes in. For these systems that you develop, can you give us a rough idea of size? I seem to remember they're fairly compact and small, right? Yeah. So normally you would have this entire factory, right? It looks like a whole factory facility that you're, there may be one or multiple in, in a city, depending on the size of a city. Like a whole plant, right? Yeah. 
And so what we're after is, is there a different way to provide this type of service so that you don't have this build as massive sets of pipes uh, under the ground? And normally the trade-off is that, well, it looks like the only thing that's available is either a latrine, which is essentially a form of hole in the ground, right. or a septic tank of some sort. And in the 21st century, and it's incredible information technology age, so there's got to be different ways to do that, right? And so the idea is that if we can have essentially a hub of some sort near where people live so that their waste can enter this hub and the pipe runs would be relatively short, could either be the one hub per house or per a cluster of houses or cluster of public toilets. But this hub would not only safely handle the waste, but go a step beyond that. It will view the waste as a resource, not a liability, but extract what we can out of the resource. So that's the water, the energy, and nutrients, and actually provide value back to the community. And this hub, because many parts of the world is crowded, so it cannot be very big. So it has to be relatively compact. And what we build are essentially a fraction of the size of a 20-foot container. Really? Yeah. And how are they powered? To date, we've built them all solar powered. And the reason is in these communities that lacking sanitation, they're probably lacking other things as well. Part of the sanitation equation is water. But electricity is another global problem. Many communities just either don't have electricity at all or is severely unreliable. And that's another part of that cost equation for the U.S. that these treatment plants we have consume a lot of electricity. So we basically need to come up with a low energy system that can run on renewables. So it runs on solar. But along the way, we also extract energy out of it in the form of biogas that communities can use for heating, cooking, lighting, and so forth. So something the size you said that could fit easily into part of a cargo container What size village could that handle both the waste and provide a reasonable amount of power for? The first form we built, what we call the new generator, new gen 100, it serves nominally about 100 person a day. Mm-hmm. And that's about a third of the size of a 20 foot container. So roughly eight foot by six and a half foot wide. And so that's the size of that. And then right now we are testing a new generator 1000 serving 1000 people for about double the size of that. So basically 10 times the capacity at double the size. And you're currently testing these, I think in India, right? In South Africa, is that where you've done most of your testing? We started our testing in India, and then later on, because we've had good success, we moved to South Africa, and these are all places where there are significant needs, and we're currently still developing the technology in South Africa. This is all through just the support of the Gates Foundation that had this vision to basically reinvent the toilets that can basically do all those things I described, independent of sewers, basically the next generation of toilets. So we were fortunate to be one of the teams funded by the Gates Foundation to develop these technologies. How did you get on their radar screen? Was there an application process or did they reach out to you or how did that connection happen? So after Georgia Tech, I later on moved on to Stanford to do my postdoc. And then that's when things start to click in terms of working with wastewater. And so I was working with this technology called an anaerobic membrane bioreactor with another good mentor there, Craig Crito. And this is sort of the latest and greatest technology for wastewater treatment. But I always felt like there's an application to apply this for a sanitation context. But the thing is, nobody would fund that. It was difficult to get funding within the U.S. because this is for a global need, mm-hmm. right? And then if I go to talk to the NGOs, they tend to want to work with tried and true technologies. There really aren't resources available to develop transformative technologies. So uh, this thing was sort of caught in between. Right. Until the Gates Foundation came along with this program that they wanted to reinvent the toilet. So it all started in 2011 with a two-page application. 
They had a program called Grand Challenges Explorations. Anybody in the world can apply. Anybody. You just need to apply two pages. And the first time I applied, I didn't get it. And then I retool, made the application better, and then applied again. And then I got it. And what year are we talking about, Daniel? Uh, that was 2011. 2011. Okay. All yeah. right. So one more question then before we move on to the space application of this and what you're working on now. I'm, I'm imagining that by nature, this is not difficult to both install and fix. So if you put it in a village or any remote area and something goes wrong, do you need to fly in an engineer from somewhere or is there extensive training that's required or how long would it take you to train a person of average intelligence how to fix one of these things? So what you described that scenario is exactly the challenges that when we develop technologies for this type of context, often in remote areas, that, that you have to think through. So first of all, the technology needs to be extremely reliable. And you need to think about all the things that may potentially fail. And every machine fails at some point. If you have a car and you never change the oil, it will fail on you at some point. If you never inflate your tire, it will fail on you. Since Henry Ford time and before, we have made so many cars in the world that we have a good idea to predict reliability in automobiles, that we understand the failure modes and mean time to failure and, and the preventive maintenance needed for those. So what we're trying to do is get our technology to that point where we can predict failures. You can have preventive maintenance, change out parts before they go out. And then you essentially have a workforce, right? Because one of the issues in a lot of these communities also is high unemployment. So you want to create value in the product you're providing so that somebody will pay for this value, this product, this service, which is sanitation, and then employ people who will be trained technicians to service the units. And people are very smart and clever anywhere in the world you go. Right. Somebody will figure out how to solve that need. And right now we're working working with some of the smartest people I've ever come across in South Africa and the prototype engineer that we have working with our sister is just dynamite. So I totally believe that this approach will work, that you make a reliable technology and then you train a technical workforce to go along with that. And then you create a business model that will sustain that operation. So let's switch now from the underdeveloped world to space. At some point, you attracted the attention of NASA. First question when I heard that is I thought, well, hasn't NASA figured this out already? I mean, even astronauts got to go. You know, they, they've, clearly they've done some work on what you do with human waste in space. So tell us, did they contact you, first of all, or you contacted them? And, and what was their request? What were they looking for? So that whole thing was serendipity. I happened to be giving a talk on the Space Coast at a workshop actually about what we were doing in India. And after my talk, a NASA scientist came over and started talking to me. His name is Luke Robertson. And he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how we need to go to this next generation of water recycling in space, because right now on the International Space Station, we're pretty good at recycling water on the International Space Station. We can recycle even the water in urine. The issue is the, the amount of chemicals involved to make that whole process happen. And he's worried that when we move beyond the ISS to the moon and then to Mars, this resupply of the chemicals will be either extremely extremely difficult or expensive or just not possible. So NASA kind of needs to go on to this next generation of technologies that might be more biologically inclined that will use less chemicals. So that's one. And the other is the needs driven by food production. Well, we need to grow food on Mars, but our current approach doesn't allow us to connect the dots. 
And I know there's fertilizer and waste, but we need an enabling technology to make that happen. So we started talking and then putting our heads together and applying a lot of the ideas that we, we developed through the new generator towards what we're currently doing with NASA. So I guess the big question, obviously, anything to do with the space is, does this work or can it work in zero gravity or low gravity? Have you done any testing so far, I imagine you have, to establish proof of concept before you go any further? Or will you not know that until you get this up on the International Space Station? So the very first thing is that we, we need to have a technology that can show that, you know, if you have a certain type of input into the system, that you can get a certain output out. So it meets the requirements of NASA, that I can have water that basically looks like water containing toilet water, and out will come clean water, right? It meets their requirements within a certain space. So that's the level that we're at right now. But obviously, we're doing this technology on Earth where gravity is present. So while we designed the system with microgravity in mind, we won't really know that until we actually build the next iteration, which hopefully then will be subjected to low gravity situations. So you kind of have to climb the ladder first. First, you need to show that, yeah, I can get it to work. And then the next iteration is, okay, I'm going to actually build a version that stand up to all the requirements of microgravity. And then the other is that, you know, microgravity is not the only setting. If you're looking at surface habitats, whether it's uh, the moon, one-sixth gravity of the earth or Mars, about one-third there's going to be gravity present. So you get to enjoy gravity a little bit mm -hmm. in the system you built for this context, although it's going to be a reduced gravity. So let me make sure I understand this correctly. So in addition to cleaning up the wastewater and converting it to water without chemicals, which is a big advantage compared to what NASA does now, you're also creating fertilizer for plants growing in space. What was NASA's plan before that? Were they just going to truck a bunch of fertilizer up to the moon? Or how did they plan, if at all, to grow things on a moon base? The, these ideas have often been considered. I think the technology just wasn't there yet because of the focus on making what you currently have work. As you know, right, NASA is given a budget by Congress and needs to work within the mandates of the budget of the current administrations. So priorities do shift over time. For example, since the Apollo era, we haven't gone back to the moon because the priority has shifted to lower Earth orbit. And you can watch all sorts of shows on TV talking about how this future would have been if we had kept going and gone to Mars. We would have been there maybe 30 years ago. But the focus had been on lower Earth orbit. So even though I think in the back of their head has always been the need to develop a different version of the technology, but the focus had been to get things to work on ISS. And what they currently have works for the ISS very well. And in fact, one of the reasons I got involved working with NASA, well, first of all, who doesn't want to work with NASA, right? right? So, <laughs> but the second is, as an engineer, is incredibly challenging. And you get to work with some really, really good people. And it also rewires your brain, I think, in a different way. But under these very difficult constraints, if you can get something to work, you can probably develop something that will work better on Earth as well. So dividends that pay off as you develop something for NASA, you could discover it, it works even better or other applications here in Earth? We, we think so, yeah. For, so, for example, we know there's a lot of technologies developed for space that has since been down translated to Earth, like GPS, mm -hmm. the algorithms used for talking to the space station is now the algorithm used for laser surgery, and the list goes on and on. So we're basically miniaturizing the new generator into uh, something the size of the refrigerator, and we see that, wow, the outcome of this might be something like an appliance 
as household appliance, like refrigerator size that can handle just basically handle all the waste that this house generates. But not, not only that, will we'll give you value back. Right. So sketch out for me, Daniel. I know you're still in the testing phase of just making sure this works, but at a conceptual level, what is the idea, let's say, if we have a moon base eventually that has several hundred people or even a thousand people? Would it be like what you just described where you'd have these sort of mini units for each household? Or is it envisioned that you'd build something like a water treatment plant using your technology just a lot bigger to service the entire base? How much thinking has gone on to, I guess, the scaling up of this type of technology to serve a relatively large-ish base? And then I'll go ahead and ask my follow-up now. Is the plan that those would be constructed there on the moon or would they be constructed here and then brought up there and assembled? I think all of those things you mentioned are all possible scenarios, right? So right now, NASA's plan is 2024 through the Artemis project, first woman on the moon, next man on the moon by 2024 and by 2028 to have a sustainable presence on the moon as a proving ground for technology so that we can put the first human on Mars by somewhere around 2033. So what's neat is that we get to have the moon to test these technologies before we just build something, think that'll work and then do on Mars. So part of this is also there's going to be a gateway station, sort of like an ISS that circles the moon. So in terms of building out the moon base, there's a number of ways it could go. And I think you always have to think economy of scale. You obviously, if you have a whole community and you want to put a treatment system in, in every household, it might be better maybe to aggregate the waste and then to have one unit, right, in that case. However, you can also see that this is going to be a colony that will slowly grow. Basically, when we go to a place like the moon, first thing we're trying to do is not die. <laughs> it's survival. Yeah. And just like the first thing that will happen when we land on the Mars is trying not to die mm-hmm. because Mars will find all sorts of ways to kill you. So as you get really good at not dying, you transition from survivability to sustainability. How do you actually sustain your presence there using the least amount of resources, costs, energy, generate the least amount of waste, recycle everything? So whatever technology that's being put in there is probably need to grow. You need to have something that maybe is there initially serving one thing phase of the operation, maybe smaller scale, and then sort of like Lego blocks will grow and be able to serve something larger rather than just shipping something, a mega-sized unit up overnight. So I think a lot of thinking needs to go in there thinking about how do we put something in there that will not only serve the needs of initial missions, but you get to basically lean on your investment and allow that initial investment to just grow so that five, 10 years down the road, say, you know what, that technology is outdated. You basically kind of scrap it. I've been talking to a number of folks on this podcast series who are all working diligently and feverishly at one aspect relating to space. How do we do X or how do we do Y? Do you have an opportunity through NASA or through any other organizations to actually interact with other people in other disciplines working on space technologies? In other words, do you get a chance to interact with doctors or chemists or biologists focus also maybe part of the Artemis program? Because I would be fascinated to know, are there areas of overlap in which even though you're in different disciplines, you're actually maybe trying to solve versions of the same problem? That is really interesting. So we work in this realm called ECLIS, that's Environmental Control and Life Support Systems. And we work in a subset of ECLIS, which is basically water and waste management. But obviously, the rest of ECLIS in terms of like air revitalization and radiation, I mean, those are all important things. And I'm also very interested in basically human physiology and psychology, because at the end of the day, it's about life support and mission success. And how do what we do contribute to that, but how to work at other people 
people do affect what we do. I would say probably right now we're so focused on just trying to get this initial piece of technology to work that I haven't had a chance to really branch out as much. But I think this will just happen as the, the project grows. And maybe I'll do this through my son. He's currently studying biomedical engineering and his goal is to do space medicine. Wow. And you think about this is actually not that long in the, f- yeah. in the future. Probably in a few years from now, he would be up and running doing this stuff. And I'll be learning from him. The biggest revolution, it seems to me, in space exploration has been the involvement of the private sector and specifically private space companies. And you've got this interesting dynamic going on. They obviously still depend on support from NASA and, and oftentimes funding. But in many instances, it looks a lot like a private sector initiative in which they're kind of set their own priorities, set their own plans get at least part of their own funding. So whether it's SpaceX or Blue Origins or Seattle Nevada Space Corporation and others. And we were talking earlier before the show about licensing and so on. Has anyone expressed any interest in your technology from a private company that says, hey, we want to develop some component of the space program. We really like what you're doing. Come work for us or develop this for us or license it to us. How much of a role is that playing or is NASA still the major and, and kind of only driver in this event that we're seeing? So right now we are working with NASA. Our goal really is to help them fulfill the mission of Artemis. It's a very ambitious schedule. But what you said there absolutely, I think, will happen in terms of licensing of our technology that's co-developed with NASA to the private sector. So I anticipate that we'll be working with the private sector as well very soon. Because I think right now, most of what the private sector is doing is getting from A to B, having a better way to get from A to B, lower cost, being able to reuse the rocket from A to B and back. But the question is going to be like, what do you do when you get on B? How do you sustain life there? And if what we're seeing with NASA is any indication, it's more complicated than anybody on Earth has ever worked on. And we've gotten good at sustaining life on ISS, but nobody's ever been able to sustain life on the moon for a continuous basis, right? A long, long period. So that's going to be, I think, a challenge for all of humanity to do that. And definitely the private sector will be part of that. So there are not already developed solutions. A lot of times what happens in the private sector, you don't hear about because it's a proprietary. But if they're not already developing those solutions, they need to be doing that. And I think they'll be working with NASA to develop those. So I got to ask before we close, Daniel, it's not out of the realm of possibility that in 2024 or sometime after that, NASA calls you up and says, hey, Professor Ye, we really need someone who knows what doing to install the first space toilet. Would you be willing to go to the moon and spend however long it takes to put one of your inventions on the moon? Absolutely. But I do hate roller coasters, so I'm not (laughs) sure how I'm going to survive liftoff. So avoid the roller coaster test for as long as you can, and maybe NASA won't notice. I got to say, it's fantastic what you've done to see progress that you've made since we first met you in 2014. I was glad to see that at least a couple of your members of your original team are still with you, I think, right? Yep. From New Generate, which is fantastic. I'm glad to see that and wish you all the best as you continue your research and certainly as you continue this development for Artemis. Thank you. And Richard, you mentioned members of the team, and I just have to say this podcast right now is me. I'm the person sitting behind the microphone, but this truly has been a team effort from the get-go. And I think I've been just very lucky to have had really good people, really good students that I work with. And students, usually there's a passion that drives them. They bring their own skill set and perspective to the team. And oftentimes my role is to just kind of steer them in the right direction. And sometimes I just get out of the way and let them do their thing. So I've been very lucky to have had good people. And you mentioned people on the original team. One of them is Robert Baer, and he's just been the key person behind the scenes. 
Well, that sounds like the perfect boss, right? You inspire people and they need to step out of the way, right? And uh, go have a sandwich or something, right? And let your team figure out the hard stuff. I think a good leader knows when to step out of the way right. because you're not necessarily the smartest guy in the room. And if you do your job, you shouldn't be the smartest guy in the room. No, absolutely. I've heard that before. <laughs> and I've said it on this show as well. If you are the smartest guy in the room, something's wrong. You know, you need, right. you need to go find some other workers or organization because that, that's probably not a good sign. But um, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us on Radio K. Wish you the best of luck and hope to have you back on the show. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.